Howdy, folks. Today we're talking about how to grow as a photographer in 2024. Do you feel like you're standing still and want to kickstart your photography in the new year? Well, then keep listening or watching right after this. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Nuss, and if you enjoy this content, consider lending your support on buymeacoffee.com forward slash cameraShake to help us create more exciting episodes for you. Your support really does make a difference. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the face of Adorama TV, the photographer, author, fellow podcaster, and insatiable coffee drinker. Give it up for Mr. Daniel Norton. Daniel, it's great to have you back on the show, man. How's things? Oh, yeah. It's good. Thank, great to be back. Yes, I'm uh, I'm doing well. Hitch hanging out here, waiting for the snow. Where, where, where exactly are you? You're just north, north of New York City. I'm right? just north of New York City, yeah. Yeah. We don't get too much here, but sometimes it's weird. This year, I predict we're going to get a bunch of snow. I hate to say it, but it, we've had like it's been colder than it normally is. So uh, I'm already like buckling in for the beginning of the year. So this is good because this will help me get motivated for the year as I talk about how you should be motivated for the year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that, that, that helps, right? It, does that help you? Like I find sometimes when I make a video or something, I, I, I motivate myself to do things. Like a lot of what I do is about. Uh, like I need to do something, so I'm just going to make a video telling people they should be doing it. That way, I, I'll feel bad if I don't do it. Yeah, and you know, I always feel like actually setting yourself something to do, like another project, for instance, does does usually help. You know, to keep you motivated. I did an oh. episode um, for, for those of you who are listening or watching on YouTube, if if that's your thing. Um, a, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, an episode on you know on on finding your motivation if you're you know if you've fallen off the wagon a little bit. Um, and, uh, I talked about a whole range of different strategies that you can deploy to, to get your motivation back. And, you know, something like, you know, personal projects, for example, is always a, it's always a favorite of mine anyway, because mm -hmm. it keeps me motivated for sure. Yeah. And, and what I love about personal projects, at least for me anyways, is when I, I often, and this is going to sound weird, but I don't always finish them. Because I don't need to. Part of the personal reason to do the personal project is to accelerate me into something else, right? So I had this idea: I'm going to photograph this, and I start doing it, and then all of a sudden I'm just shooting again, and I'm I'm doing stuff, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's what I really love over here. And this personal thing was just something that kind of sped me up. Like I don't know, maybe people don't do that. Maybe someday I'll have a a, a gallery show of half done personal projects. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a thing. Like, isn't it? Um, you can you can sort of. Uh you can divide people up into different personality types. And like one type is like a finisher and, um, you know, and, and all the rest of it. And I'm, I'm definitely not a finisher just generally. I think, um, a lot of the time I come up, I always say like, I have a whole bunch of really good ideas. I'm just not very good of finishing any of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to do, you know, that, that uh, you do enough of them, right? That's really the goal in life is to do enough stuff. You don't have to do everything. That That's kind of where I look at. Exactly. And also, you know, sometimes you have an idea and you kind of think like, okay, cool. I, I want to, you know, shoot this thing. And then you get started. And as you're doing it, you can go, well, uh, actually, hang on a second. I've just come up with an even better idea. And then you just hop onto that. Right. You know, 
that's often how it that's often how it works with creative endeavors. Actually, no matter whether it's photography yes. or it could be music, you know, it could be could be all sorts of different things. Yeah, it's like when you look back at it, you know, from a distance, you can see that it's not that you didn't complete uh, the first project. Is that the purpose of that project? You just didn't know it was to motivate you to do the next one. That's how we'll spin that. How's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So today we're going to talk about how you can grow as a photographer in 2024. So for instance, if you're, you know, if you feel like, well, you know, you're, you sort of come to the end of the line with the kind of stuff that you do, like, what is it that you can do to, to make yourself a better photographer in 2024? It's always, it's a great time of year to, to talk about this because, you know, we're, we're at the end of 2023. Um, you know, we can look forward to, to a whole new year. It's a new start. Um, so, Let's 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 talk about things you could do to grow as a photographer in 2024. Especially, actually, I should mention, especially now that for some reason it feels like over the last year so many things have happened. You know, in in photography, I'm not only talking about like new camera technologies. I'm talking about like you know things like AI that wasn't even a thing a year ago almost. Right. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I was just speaking with one of my studio mates. I, I share my studio with several photographers. We almost never see each other. I see Seth a bunch, but, but uh, the other photographers I almost never see. And Paul, who's been there since the 80s, you know, he's a well-established commercial photographer. He came in and he was so excited about the AI and Photoshop. You know, it was just like, it's oh, it's amazing to see this person, you know. I mean, I'm an old guy, but you see an you know, old guy be like, oh man, you should see what this does. I'm digging up all my old images and I'm I'm adding this. And there was a terrible, I remember shooting this image I loved, but the sky was terrible. I like fixed it and changed it. And now I'm adding it to my portfolio. And it's interesting. So I guess one thing I would say, um, just off the top of my head, which I wasn't going to say, but that, as I said, that is to uh, maybe uh, look back, right? I think sometimes when we want to grow, a good idea is to just kind of roll back a little bit. Maybe there's something that you're better at now, like what could be editing in this case, or maybe you just have a better uh, ability to pick the images that are better in your work. Um, yeah, roll back a little bit and look at some of your older work. I think that actually does help people get better. If we just shoot, and I did this for many years because I was shooting fashion where, you know, fashion is in the moment. I never looked at my old stuff. Like I didn't care about it. It was like, that's last year. But then as I got older, I started looking back at it and going, oh, right. Like this is what I did there and I was almost there. And now I have the tech, the skill because now I'm a different person. I'm in a different location. I can do that better. And I kind of bring that back up and and actually helps my modern work, even though it's something I did a long time ago. So maybe looking back at some of your older stuff and and rethinking it with a with a clean eye or a new eye might be a good way to kind of push yourself forward. And it's also often the case, I think, that, you know, it's very difficult to realize how much you've actually improved because and I had a chat with somebody um, in a previous episode about this because you're always the one person that's always there when you're doing stuff I mean mm -hmm. my example is always you know I remember when I was a kid for instance I was playing the was learning how to play the guitar you know it's one of these things like it's difficult for me to realize that I'm getting better on a, on a day by day basis but my aunt right. who comes to visit every six weeks or so you know she would come in and she'd be like oh you know your playing sounds so much better than it did like only six weeks ago and I'm like well, I can see that. Not to me, it doesn't sound like it's gotten any better. But of course, it has gotten better. It's just that, for, from my perspective, the improvement was so microscopic and minimal, right. day by day. But of course, from her perspective, on a six weekly basis, a two monthly basis, right, it's like jump, jump, jump. Yeah, yeah, it was a much more mass massive, much more noticeable jump. And so, what I used to do back then 
was I used to record things into little tapes and I used to put it on a, in a shoebox and I didn't I wouldn't listen to it for a few months and then three months later or something I would pick out the tapes and I would listen to them and I'd be like wow it's incredible how shit that sounds now when three months ago I thought this was you know as we say in the UK the docs bollocks basically <laughs> you know <laughs> and it's like oh you know and it's just you know it's a and I find that with photographs yeah. as well as you mentioned if you look back at like shots that you did a couple of years ago you know you just go well actually you know maybe I've improved more than I thought I had judging by right. the crap that I shot you know five years ago or something like that yeah and I actually keep it like digitally like portfolios so I, I, I sort my stuff by year so I can go back and look at like my my portfolio at the end of like you know 1998 or something and be like oh okay and it, it, like I say, sometimes I could see something there that was a, a kernel of an idea, going back to what we started talking about, and I didn't quite get there, and I abandoned it. You know, maybe I wasn't ready, maybe it wasn't the right thing for me, and then that can get me going. So if you have no place to start, you're thinking, well, I'm just going to pick a random project to do, maybe go back and look at some stuff you've done in the past and reevaluate it. Not necessarily reshoot it, but rethink what you were thinking when you did it, and maybe revisit those techniques that maybe you have now perfected. And also talking about techniques, you know, a lot of the time, you know, with the advancement of technology, like Photoshop being one, you know, AI being being one. Um, but if, if we just think like in terms of like Photoshop, the amount of tools that are available now, like every, it seems like every few months or something, there's a new tool or a tool that's, that now works a little bit different. I'm thinking like, you know, spot removal tool or something like um, the gradient tool recently was overhauled, so it works differently now. Although you can switch back to the classic right. version, which is what I do because my brain isn't large enough to understand the new way of working with us. <laughs> you know, I like that um, they do that for a while, right? Where you can switch back just in case you, uh, you know, you're not, you're not ready for it. That's that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's just you know because sometimes, of course, sometimes these tools are just part of a workflow. I'm thinking like, um, you know, skin retouching for example is a good example for me. So I use I use the gradient tool a lot when it comes to skin retouching. And, um, and I just have a way to do it that to me is really quick, you know? Right. Um, and it was just like when they changed the way that the gradient tool worked, all of a sudden, none of that worked anymore. And I'm like, uh, what's going on here? Right. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> so it's because it's just like, it's like one Lego brick, you know, a crucial Lego brick in, in my little Lego house <laughs> of, of skin retouching. Um, it just made the whole thing collapse. I'm like, that's shit. I can't, I have to, like, I, I need to go back to the previous Photoshop version because, you know, and then I realized, oh, okay, no, you can just switch this back to classic gradient tool and, you know, it's fine. But, you know, generally I find that often there are opportunities um, to to learn how to use these new tools because actually what might happen is they might make your workflow much easier. It would save you a lot of time and, and possibly, you know, the results might even be better than they were before. And what that what that means is you can, you know, you can grow by basically improving your skill set as an editor after the fact. And that's, that's a really good way of, of doing that. For me, anyway, that works. Yeah, I think understanding, like, what you can do and how editing works is key to shooting, really. Because the edit is something that happens to something you created on the set, right? So when you are shooting you want to shoot to the edit. That's like the, the, the ideal. You don't want to shoot and then have to figure out the edit later. So 
mastering those tools that you like to use, whether they be skin retouching or, you know, in the case of my friend, like doing more landscape stuff, knowing how they work and knowing what you need to capture when you're on set and what you don't need to capture, like what doesn't matter really because it doesn't affect you later. That's really key. You know, it, it's something that it sometimes it's hard to learn. <laughs> you know, even I, I know I went to a period because when Photoshop started getting better and better, you know, I had to shift the way I thought because like if we used to, you know, in fashion photography, it's like you would fix everything, like every little tiny hair, every little, and it took time on the set. And then what we found was, okay, this takes now no time in post. So we can keep going and we don't have to keep stopping and do this. And, and you end up getting, let's say two or three more shots a day. And that makes a difference, right? That makes you more efficient. That makes the client happier. You know, you can do variations. It gives you more time to shoot like special things you want to add to it. And so knowing like the whole workflow from the beginning, the kind of what you can do on the set, what you can do at post is, is super important. And if you don't do that now, if, you, if oh, you've always just like gone off and shot, maybe that's something to do, right? Think like really think about how you edit your pictures, find the consistent things that you do to them and start making that your workflow and think, okay, I'm going to do this tool, that tool, this tool. So when I'm on set, I have to think about that or whether you're, you know, I say on set, meaning out shooting it, it could be street photographer, landscape, whatever. Absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that because I've been preaching this for definitely for the three years I've been doing this, this podcast, <laughs> you know, at every time I speak anywhere, it's, you know, it's, that is, that's really my mantra is, you know, shoot for the edit or that's yeah. anyway, that's what I do. I shoot for the edit. I know exactly what the edit, what the post-production side of it is going to look like. And I know what I need for that to happen. So therefore I need to make sure during the actual production phase or during the shoot, I get exactly what I need for the, for the edit, you know? Um, and, and of course it, it works both ways. There are a lot of tools that, that save us time in post on the flip side. Also, there are a lot of things that we can do during the shoot that will actually save us time in the edit later on, you know, whether right. that's like simple things, um, like, you know, just turning somebody, t telling somebody to turn the other way, just so that we don't see their, I don't know, mustard stain. <laughs> and I don't have to Photoshop that out later, you know, what's the headshot or whatever it right. may be. You know, to, um, yeah, to, to just having a lint roller, uh, you know, handy. So I don't have to, I don't have to fix their clothing for like 10 minutes afterwards, which is just, you know, it's like using the roller is going to take 10 seconds, fixing that in post, right. going to take 10 minutes. So it's just saved me a whole, whole well, bunch of. Exactly. If you have to do a lot of shots, right? Because that's the thing that you can consider. Like everything you fix on set is going to affect every image. So if there is lint on, let's say a shirt or a stain, like even if it takes five minutes for the person to change their shirt, that will save you so much time. If you have 50 images, you're going to have to take that out of later. So again, yeah. and if it's not that case, if it's one single image and you just need to get it, the sun's perfect and you want to nail it, then you know, okay, I'm going to shoot this with the intent that I'm going to make sure I can, you know, get it framed up and shot in a way that'll be easier to take out where there's not a weird shadow going across it. And, you know, just to make your life a lot easier. And that, that's just something that, that we learned. And I think thinking about the entire process as a whole is kind of next level, if you will, since we're talking about growing. Like, that is something. Like, not I shoot, I edit, or I think about a shoot, I shoot, I edit. It's all the whole thing. What's the process from start to finish? And that becomes just part of everything that you think about and do. Like, that will move you to that next level as a, as a creator, really. Not just photography, but really anything you do, I think. Yeah, and think, thinking about the end result first, and then so almost like, you know, taking the process upon thinking like, okay, how, how can I get there in the most, you know, efficient way possible. And we talked about this before we went in there, we were talking about how we make videos, for example, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and we were talking about, you know, um, 
you know, free flowing and you know, talking to camera uh, without a script, basically, you know, uh, compared to actually scripting all the talky bits for a video right. and what effect that can have on the post production. You know, for instance, like I mentioned earlier, but for me, um, there are situations where I, ha I shoot through a script and it, it saves me so much time afterwards because everything right. else on that video, um, it basically comes off of the script. First of all, the script itself means that I'm not waffling, unlike I do on this podcast, clearly. But, you know, it means that everything is concise and to the point and, you know, um, and I'm not talking, I'm not repeating myself and all the rest of it. Um, but on the other hand, when it comes to the edit then, I, I then I know exactly, for instance, what B-roll I need to produce. I know exactly um, how the sequence of events is going to be in the edits, you know, so actually um, putting the whole thing together afterwards just saves you so much time. And it can really make the difference, you know, between the spending, I don't know, 10 hours or something editing a video and like spending two hours editing a video or even less than that, I'm, you know. So it's it's just about rethinking, thinking about the workflow. And actually, this podcast is a really good example uh, because I, not too long ago, I switched around, I switched around the, the way that I make this podcast. Uh, I used to I used to record, uh, I used to record this, this podcast on Zoom and now I'm using a different thing called Ecamm. And really what it does is it it cuts the amount of time I need to edit afterwards in half. That's especially when I'm talking oh. about the YouTube version. So if you are listening to the audio version of this, be reminded there's a fully fledged, uh, fully technicolored version over on YouTube um, as well. So it's, it's sometimes it's, it's really just thinking, okay, well, how can I make this process more efficient um, so that mm -hmm. I don't have to do anything that's unnecessary, really? Yeah, I think embracing technology is like super important. And and I think it's easy for us to to not, right? We find a way that works for us or we think that works for us and we just don't look anywhere else. And sometimes even things that were considered like entry level or amateur or, you know, just people having fun with it, whatever, how you want to describe it, can be great tools for, for professionals. Like it's crazy how good some of this stuff is. And you're just like, wow, you can do so much stuff now and it saves you time, which gives you more time to be creative right? It, it, I never think of anything as fixing. I think that's where you start having the issues, where you're looking for something to fix something that you did wrong. That's where you got to back up and go, okay, hold on. I know we should have done a better job on, on, the, on the shoot, but anything that can help you and make your life easier is like phenomenal, you know? And thinking about the final result, even if it's not, like a lot of times I'll get a model and we'll just shoot. Like, I don't have an idea. People ask me this all the time. They'll be like, well, did you think this was going to be the shot? So in that case, I'm not like, I don't know the final shot per se, but I know the idea. Like, I know why we're getting together. We're getting together to do something, right? And that thing is my in my head as we're creating. It might take us a while to get there. We might be leaning towards it. But it, whatever is in my head is there so that when we get to the end, I know I have it, right? That's You do want to have an idea. Even if the idea comes to you halfway through the shoot, right? You want to have it before you end the shoot. You don't want to leave the shoot going... I think I got some pictures that are good. I'll figure it out. Like that's not where you want to end any particular shoot. So having some kind of an idea or at least checking in on yourself as you're shooting is important, no matter what kind of project it is. Exactly. That's, I always call it a seed. You know, I always want to have sort of a seed. Yeah. And then as mm -hmm. you as you get into it, into the into the creative process, um, you allow that seed to to grow. And then, you know, you don't necessarily know what the what the end result is actually going to be like. You just know that you've planted the seed, and then the process is the the, the growing process, basically. And then you, you end up with right. the finished plant. I don't know where I was going with this. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah. 
but you know it happens it happens a lot um i think you know really across all creative endeavors you know um you know i I remember i remember doing a thing um not at all god i did a thing for platypod where i basically wanted to prove that you could use that you could use relatively small led panels to create Mm -hmm. professional standard headshots and initially everybody went like well that's, you can't you need a big light source because blah 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 and this and the other you know it's, no, it's gonna be too hard it's not gonna be soft enough yeah and i thought like so you're saying i can't do it well i bet i can and i just found a way to do it you know and that's that's basically that and so so it, it was i didn't really necessarily know how good the outcome was gonna be but it was just you know putting that seed in the ground and then trusting the process and actually I probably I mean to be honest with you I surprised I surprised myself with the outcome if I'm honest right. I didn't necessarily I didn't necessarily think that the results were going to be as good as they actually ended up being um but you know that's cool proved a concept yeah that's but, always good no I, you yeah. know I like this too and kind of on that although it wasn't the case in you in your case do things that you're you don't know are going to work I think is a good way to grow allow yourself to screw up to fail to take bad pictures so don't don't go into things. I mean, I used to tell people all the time, this is one thing that's nice about being a little more established was I would have model friends and stuff. And I would say, I want to shoot something. We might not get anything. Like, I just want to try something. This could be garbage, but you know, I'll buy your lunch, <laughs> you know, and we'll hang out and we're friends, you know, and they were down, you know, and, or, or I, they'd be like, okay, that's cool. But I also need a headshot. Can we use some kind of a trade? And that's where this like, you know, interacting and trading with people comes in. It's like, all right, well, that's fine, but now I'm going to do this, and you may never see these pictures because, you know. And I think those are the times where we can grow when we're not afraid of failing because that's what will happen, right? You're going to get this person. It's hard for you to find somebody to photograph. You finally get a friend to volunteer. You don't want to have a picture they they don't love. So instead of growing and trying and moving on and doing different techniques, you're like, I'm just going to shoot this thing I know works. And I think that that might not be the ideal. So if you... If you are going to do that, make sure you're also doing something after the pushing it uh, just beyond to a point where you're like, I don't know if it's going to work. I, I think it is. I have an idea. I think I understand it. But I mean, who knows, right? We're going to find out in a minute and you find out. Hey, let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode, Platypod. Platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity. With their stable, versatile, and portable solutions, you can capture stunning shots like never before. And I'm not just saying that. As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypod's incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, I'm surrounded by various Platypod products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home in the studio and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platypod's website at www.platypod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platypod Extreme, Platyball Tripod Heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platypod on Instagram and Facebook at Platypod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platypod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platypod, our amazing sponsor. Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. 
Exactly. And also, you know, working with other people, I've always found, I mean, throughout my whole sort of past as a musician, I've found uh, working with other people extremely, extremely useful because I always think, you know, multiple brains think better than just one brain, you know, and, and you come up with an idea and then somebody else goes, yeah, but what if we did that? And you go, oh, actually, that's a really good idea. And so the end result usually turns out to be better than the sum of the individual parts. And that's, you know, that's yeah. always, that's the beauty, the beauty in it for me. And I think I remember, you know, when I first started out um, as a as a portrait photographer, working with models or working with with people who were more experienced with modeling really helped a ton because, you know, I'd, I'd try out different things and they would, they would just make a suggestion and go like, you know what, I, I always like it when I do this or when the light is there. And you go, ah, right. I'll try that. And you go, oh, yeah, I've learned another thing because that's cool. And that's always the thing, you know, when you work with people yes. who um, who are also invested in it, then then you can actually grow together. And it's you yeah. can feed back off of each other, and I found that extremely useful. It's just to get together with other people, try think. Uh, street photography is a really good idea, you know. Uh, rather than just going into town by yourself, get a little group of people together, you know, and you yeah. can all hit the town, do some street photography, compare shots, you know, stop by a coffee shop or something, have a coffee, compare shots, you know, compare notes, and uh, and and learn that way. It's I've always found that for me. That's always been uh, really, for the most part, it's been, it's been really the source of, of, of my own improvement was to, to communicate with other people. Yeah, I agree with that. I think being around other people, and, and I love that you talk about that, the, you know, like a model will suggest something and you're like, oh, I'll try it. Because I can tell you there are a lot of photographers that get offended when like somebody else, like the photo assistant or the model or that, they're just like, don't tell me how to do things. I mean, obviously people can overstep. I'm not saying that, but like you're all there. And if you if you have a team that's so motivated that they're all into the shots, then as long as you keep it orderly, there's no reason why you can't listen to what they're saying. I mean, why not? Maybe they do know something. I mean, I'm yeah. totally open to to trying stuff. I mean, that's just a great way to do it. And on to when well, you're talking about the street photography, and something I did years ago, which I should really do again now you maybe I'll do it twenty minutes before, is I used to get with groups of photographers and hang out and then every once in a while, like twice a year, three times a year, we would do like a photo swap, you know? So it, it, it basically you take a picture you really like and you kind of swap with people, right? Everybody like kind of puts it up to random, however you want to do it. And that's like a really fun way to do it because you can kind of hang out as photographers and take some some of somebody else's work, which is cool, and they're taking your work. But what's nice about that is it gives you a goal, right? It's like, oh, I want to create something really fun or a great picture that represents me for the photo swap so that one of my friends can have it and maybe, you know, possibly put it on their wall or however they're going to do it which I just think is a really great feeling, you know, because maybe you're never going to put something in a gallery or whatever, but to know somebody appreciates your work well enough to, to take it and put it up somewhere is, is pretty important. So, you know, just find some friends that are interested and say, and they don't even have to be local because you could do, you know, online printing where it just gets shipped to them, right? You don't even have to do it that way, but do some kind of uh, photo swap uh, a couple times a year with friends. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great idea. Uh, you know, coming back to the model, the modeling thing, um, so recently I did a, um, a workshop in the Lofoten Islands uh, where we shot Northern Lights and Vikings. We had uh, some Viking models with us um, in nice. Northern Norway in an Arctic landscape. So it's, you know, it's kind of, it's very, very cool, cool because it's, it's as authentic as it, as it'll always get, or, you know, as far as the backdrop is concerned, because that was one of the sort of centers of, of, of Viking life a thousand years ago. And the landscape hasn't really changed at all. I mean, you just, you know, you take a look around and it's like, well, okay, well, that's, 
that's what it looked like a thousand years ago when the Vikings were actually relevant. And so you put a Viking model in front of that and but, you just, uh, you know, there's, there's no need for AI anymore because it's right, right there. Um, and, uh, we, so we had two models, um, on this, on this workshop, uh, and they were both, um, professional historical models. So modeling as oh. Vikings, modeling as, uh, you know, knights and armor and stuff, that, that was their thing, um, on and off a horse, actually, interesting enough. So we also had oh. some horses there that we used for, for some of the shoots, um, and, uh, we call them our Netflix Vikings cause that's what I do. So they're on shows like Vikings and Vikings, but how our Netflix. Oh, and that's very cool. it's just, yes. It's those kind of, you know, full armor weaponry, like full regalia, really very, very cool, very detailed. But the really interesting thing about that was, is, was that it was real teamwork. You know, they were really up for, they had a lot of expertise in giving us like the, you know, the, the Viking poses and then all that kind of stuff that was Oops. really cool and but they were also really open to trying out new things you know because here we have a viking but we are in the 21st century or well almost the 21st century if i think about the Lofotlands, pretty much the 21st century <laughs> you know but um but it was really interesting actually to do some things that were maybe a little bit out of out of the ordinary for what they used to be doing and, and it was it was a really creative um a really creative workflow you know it was it was great it's great to get all sorts of different shots that you didn't think you were going to get um you know and so yeah it was just a really fantastic creative environment to shoot it yeah it sounds awesome the northern nights what's the other thing no oh well just to top it off <laughs> that sounds fantastic <laughs> You know, and kind of on that note, and one of the first things I thought of when you when you told me the subject was, and this is something I think when people get a little more experience, they stop doing, but I think it's something we should all be doing is help other photographers, you know, your peers, like just go effectively as a photo assistant, if you want to put it that way. You're not shooting it. You're there to help them. You're listening to them. You're being hands for them. You're giving them, you know, tips if they, if they ask, you know, whatever you're part of the shoot, but you're not the photographer. You're just on the set and i think that opens your eyes to more things because you know we're on the set shooting we can be very focused right because we're shooting right so but when you're there as an assistant you are seeing everything you're watching you're over here you're not seeing things that the photographer that only the photographer sees like you're, you i should say there's things that the assistant sees the photographer doesn't see and that's why i think you should be listening to people but do that like step down and i know a lot of people that They've got ego. They're like, I don't want to be seen as an assistant, but it's like, I'll help somebody. I would love to be on people's photo shoots. I love to see how they do it because everybody can teach you something. So if you, if you are out there and you know other people, help them go on their shoots. Hopefully they'll help you too, right? That's also nice. Uh, and you will learn. I mean, you'll learn even if the person isn't, let's say, quite at your level. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily help somebody who doesn't know how to load their camera, load the camera. I think everybody loads their camera these days. That's, that's me being old there. <laughs> Do we load cameras anymore? I just gave away my age. <laughs> What's where are we? Are we in the twenty first century? I don't. Know. Yeah. So the, the well, you know, even if they're, I mean, I wouldn't. You know, if somebody just started, I wouldn't. That, that wouldn't learn anything from that necessarily. But people that are at my level, maybe slightly, maybe they haven't been published, but they're experienced and they're good. You know, help them. Why not? It can't hurt you. Oh, absolutely. This, you know, and it might just be a little thing, but I, virtually almost every time I come away from something like that thinking. Huh, I didn't know that thing. That's pretty clever. I'm going to do that from now on. You know, and it's, it might just be a little, a little thing, you know, um, well, I mean, this, uh, that count as even just doing this podcast actually, and talking to people, 
Um, I've learned yes. so many, so many different things. And you know, people often think like, oh man, you know, it's, it's, you know, talking to those of photographers that must have done you the world of good in terms of like your lighting technique and stuff. Probably true. But I tell you, some of the, the most useful things I've learned are little, 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 little things. Like I remember having a conversation with Joel Grimes one time and he goes like, and I was complaining about my light like slipping, you know, and he goes like, oh, you know, I'll just yes. take an angle grinder and I'll just cut in like a, a straight, like a straight edge. And I'm like, here, why don't people do that? That's a really good idea. <laughs> Fixed it. I do that to all of my stands now. That's it. Yeah, it's pretty right <laughs> Nice. Yeah, yeah and little just things, right? Things. It's funny because it's it's so many of those things that make up like the the professional, if you will, right? That's that's where you step beyond just the person that that does the stuff, right? Like uh, you you're building your own things, modifying things to work for you. You're, you're, or when people do things, what I say is do things the wrong, right? You go there and they're using something that, that's not a thing that's meant for. And you're like, hold on, why do you have that over there? And they're like, oh, it does this. You're like, it does? Hold on, what? Yeah. You know, you know it's like, oh, no, well, oh, I'll do that, you know, because that's what people do, right? People find solutions. One of the most fun things that I used to do when I was actually in the, the actual store, like as the advisor at Adorama, was people would come in and they'd need to like rig something. And they'd be like, I, I have to do this shot. I have no idea how I'm going to get this light here or this camera here. And I'd be like, let me show you. <laughs> you know, and we'd be out there with all kinds of stuff. And it's just so fun because I had done so much of that. You know, I early on, I worked for this photographer that did the advertising for cruise ships. And, you know, you were shooting these huge ballrooms and stuff and you, just, you can't put stands out. You know, everything's being like hidden and this is over there. That's over there. And it's just, you learn to like be creative with how you put lights. And it really makes you think about because you want to get them in a place where you can get a good picture, obviously, but also they can't be in the shot. So it's like, you can't just do the thing and put the softbox here, right? You gotta, you gotta think about it. What are we going to use? How are we going to use grids? How are we going to use this? And because of that, you learn a lot. You understand like how things work. So I think that watching how people do things that do different things than you, like if people used to, like it was funny because I, a friend of mine, when I was growing, growing up, when I was a photo assistant, he only wanted to assist fashion photographers because we both wanted to do fashion. And I just took, mostly because I needed the money, <laughs> I just took any work. I worked for food photographers. I worked for product photographers. I worked for just people who shot portraits. And man, I mm -hmm. learned so much doing that. People that do other things that you don't do, they use equipment, they use techniques, they use the, the, the light different than you do. And you can bring that into your work. So maybe that's another way to grow is to look at work that's not what you look at, right? And say, if you shoot portraits, look at landscapes or product photography. If you shoot product photography, look at, you know, uh, I don't know, food. Well, I guess food is product, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, the pandemic was a really good um, example for that, you know, and again, something yeah. I've talked about many times on this podcast, but basically, you know, during the pandemic, of course, for any portrait photographer, especially, I guess it was probably similar in the US, I'm guessing, but over here in the UK, we had like really super strict lockdowns and it was very difficult oh, yeah. to photograph people, um, especially indoors. Um, and so, uh, you know, as a consequence, you had to do other things. And especially, of course, if you had to make a living, then you had to look at other ways of photographing things. And I, I found myself photographing products, which I've really never done before. That's not completely not my thing. I like photographing people mainly because I always find that inanimate objects don't laugh at my jokes, basically. You know, that's <laughs> one of those things. Really boring conversation to have with like a soap bar. It's like, uh, you know. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, but, but. During the pandemic, of course, you know, if somebody said to me, mm -hmm. in fact, somebody did say to me, you know, can you photograph these these white soap bars on a, they were shampoo bars, shampoo and conditioner bars, like, you know, like, like they look like soap bars. They were white. 
and we went to our website, but can you please shoot them on a white background? I'm like, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Sure. This is extremely boring, but this could be a creative yeah. challenge. See if we, could, yeah. if we could do that. You know, and yeah, I've learned a ton. It was, I mean, was it fun? Uh, maybe at times it was fun. It was, it was a creative thing that I could do when I couldn't do much else. Uh, would I still right. be shooting sopas? No, probably not. But, you know, but it was, I yeah, learned a lot from it. It was fun, you know. It definitely takes a, a different type of person to do that kind of work. Yeah, I used to share a studio with the guy that did like product stuff and he, he would like spend days assembling sets and like building little pieces of like, you know, things to like shield certain, this is back before Photoshop and like we were just talking about technology helped a lot. I mean, he would have all these little mirrors like shining on logos and stuff. And that's just what he loved to do. It was almost like somebody who just like builds model airplanes or something, you know, and like you see him painting it and stuff. That's, that's this guy. He would be there like building sets and doing this and, and he just loved it. Like that's what he did, you know, and he was, he was a social guy too. It wasn't like he was, you imagine this guy being like a recluse, but he loves just the technique. It, it, it I was awesome watching him and I would help him, but like, I wouldn't want to do that all day long. Cause that's just not what I do. I mostly just like interacting with people. And if I get to photograph them, you know, and then be paid for it, that's even better. So that's kind of how I look at it. You know, you try to do what you yeah. love and what I love is interacting with people. Absolutely. As it's just, you know, you talk about, oops, I'm dropping, dropping everything. Uh, so you're talking about, um, you know, about, uh, about product photography in that way and building sets. And of course, you know, in toy photography, that's very often, that's the thing. And, um, I, uh, again, I mentioned it on the show. I, I recently did a, um, um, I did a tutorial video on, on toy photography for Platypod TV or for uh, the Platypod YouTube channel. Uh, for anybody who's listening or watching us on YouTube, I'll put the link down there, head over to Platypod, um, and check that out. Um, but not just, just not just now, wait until the end of this episode and then go over it. Um, but so the idea was basically, you know, um, to shoot a Darth Vader action figure, um, and light it in an interesting way and so forth. And, um, and so for the, for the backdrop, I basically used a computer screen, you know, and I found, I found a really cool Star Wars image and I used it as, as a, as a backdrop and then lit the action figure accordingly. And it was really fun and all the rest of it. And then there was a post-production element making lightsabers and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's really cool. But, um, when I look at toy photographers like Dave DeBerrymaker, for example, or Jesse Fireisen, like, you know, people who build these dioramas, um, and Dave, Dave, even like he 3d prints elements for, for the sets that he built. I mean, the, the, the level of application is, is incredible, yeah. you know, like he, you know, he, he'll build like a set of like an old broken up medieval wall or something that is some kind of warrior or a dragon, like. He 3D prints not only the warrior or the dragon and then hand paints them before he photographs them. He also 3D prints every brick in that damn wall. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's phenomenal. It really is phenomenal. Well, and yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, that's the technology, right? Again, that technology is helping people to do things better. So it's knowing we do these things and this is where 3D printing can help us because, you know, I'm sure, just like how people complain about, things that leave it forward that's with the with photography i'm sure our model makers were like oh no we used to make bricks by hand you know <laughs> and now it's, you know that's no good but but the thing is is that the technology allows that creator to be even better so knowing what you can do by hand and what you can use the 3d printer for but yeah it's it's fascinating right and that's i'm sure that my friend if i was still friends with him, i've seen him in years now 
uh, you know, if he's still doing product photography, which I don't think he is, but if he is, then, uh, you know, it would be cool. I'm sure he'd be all about the 3D printers because he loved doing it. He frustrated me to, to no end, though, because he would spend three days building a set for like a personal project, you know, that he was going to put for his portfolio and then not love it and just take the whole thing apart. Oh. And I'm like, at least take a picture. Like, what do you do? And he's like, no, I won't use it. So why take a picture? It's like, you just spent three days of your life. Just take a picture. You know, I mean, it was the film day, so it wouldn't cost him money, but it's not like, oh my God, he, all the time I would argue with him. Like, let me do it then. You know, it's like, but he was, nope, nope. I think what I find so frustrating about about things like that is like you literally spend like you know hours or days building the set, and then you actually shoot us like five minutes. And that's it. We've got the picture. Yeah. That's it. I mean, literally, you know, I spend I don't know. I spend the best part of a day like you know creating the lighting and then posing and setting up, you know, setting up Darth Vader and like creating this whole thing, um, and I literally took. I mean, I had like a, I had an atmosphere spray bottle because I wanted to give it a little bit more. Um, right. atmosphere in the in the shot um and so i probably took i mean maybe 10 pictures i think that's about it and it was over yes really quickly <laughs> and then and then you look back at it and like yeah i've got what i needed is that it <laughs> it's like you know and then it's just yeah like, that, oh, okay 100 that, that's the funny thing about those kind of shoots i, I feel the same way then you're just like really that was it like because all of it's the build-up right on some level i felt that way with fashion when i shoot a lot of fashion catalog it's like you would have all this pre-production built up to it. They'd build sets and the, the stylists and the makeup and everything else. And you get the model on the set and you shoot, especially with digital, it's like they can see it, right? So you shoot like a dozen pictures and you're done. And that takes a minute, you know? I mean, yes, it's all day and you're shooting a lot of models, but it's like, it's not. It's, it's like, oh, that was that was the whole shoot. Whereas like when I do a test shot, I'll be like two hours with the models who do all different things. And but you don't need to do that. It's a waste, right? It's kind of what we were talking about before in some ways being efficient. It's like, I don't need to shoot 100 pictures as a model of this dress. I have it. It's like, this is what we need. It looks good. You can see it on the screen. We pick the one we want. We move on. That's kind of the downside to commercial photography. It's amazing because we get to do what we love. But at the same time, sometimes it is what it is, right? Your your skill allows you to do it efficiently. So you don't need to take a lot of pictures, which is both good and bad. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, shooting Tethered, for example. Is this just a simple thing? Mm -hmm. you know, if you're not used to shooting Tethered, this could be a really good thing to try out. Yeah. Um, because it does allow you to actually um, really grow as a photographer. It, it, that's my own personal experience. Was really when I started shooting Tebbit, especially on set, um, it really meant that I could really dial in the lighting much, much better than I could just by looking at a picture on the, you know, on the back of the screen. Um, you get so much more detail. You can zoom in. You know, you can really, really dial stuff in. And actually, as a, as sort of, there's like a feedback loop. You can see things better, you can adjust things in more detail, and then therefore you learn a lot more about lighting. A lot of the time, I, you know, I used to think like, you know, I, I don't know how to do this particular lighting setup, but then actually you find yourself really kind of honing in on it and, and mm -hmm. really like improving your own skill set, even on something that you thought you had a grasp on already anyhow. Yeah, 100%. And what you can do there is you can do your basic like tweaking, right? Your contrast, your colors and stuff right, right there in the capture. So you know what you need to do in post. You know, right? Kind of again, going to that whole thing, you know that you can add that contrast or shift that color and it's going to look the way you want it to look, at least roughly. You can do it really quickly while you're still on the set and you're not going to get back and be like, oh yeah, I have to adjust this, this contrast. Then when you do it, you're like, oh, that's not good. Now I have to really tweak it and make multiple copies of the layers and 
you know you can just do it because you shot it that way and it looks good and you can do it right. And one thing I used to do, again, with clients that don't know, they're not used to being on sets, is shooting tethered is great because you can put like overlays, you can crop it, and you know, that, that way they can see it the way they're going to see it. And there's not these questions of like, well, but hold on, I wanted a square picture. What does it look like? You know, back in the day with Polaroids, we used to have like this little device that you would like different, had different proportions and you would put it over the Polaroid. So they'd see it because, you know, clients, they, sometimes they can't imagine. They see all the yeah. extra and they don't understand. They're like, this is supposed to be square. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I can't make it square. You know, it's like, but in Capture One or whatever, or however each other, you can do that. So yeah, I think shooting tethered. Actually, I think the opposite is also true. Maybe this is a good like way would be to shoot tethered because that will that will elevate you 100%. But if you're if you're used to checking like your camera constantly when you're shooting, try shooting without looking at it, you know, like see what would happen. Like you're probably better than you think you are. <laughs> you know, I, I sometimes tell the story of at one point when I was coming up, I this is still back in the film days, my I made the mistake of handing the makeup artist uh, my light meter and we were on a subway and she put it down and we got off in a rush and then we went to shoot. And I was like, where's that light meter? And she was like, huh? And so I lost my light meter and I was broke young photographer. And I, I shot for like two, three months with no light meter, uh, but I was using flash. I knew, and this is before TTL, I just trusted my gut. I'm like, I've been using these flashes for many years. I know it's five, six when I put it here, you know? And I was mostly right, you know? I was able to pull off doing the shoots without the light meter. Not that I wanted to not have a light meter, but it allowed me to realize I'm better than I think I am. So kind of like looking back at your work, like we talked about, this also does that for you. Go out and shoot. Don't look at the screen. Turn it off. You know, turn off the preview. See if you're nailing it without doing it. Give yourself that confidence that you are. I mean, don't do it on an important job that you have to get it, right? Uh, but stop looking, you know, because I think that's the other thing, right? We sometimes, especially when we are tethered or, you know, sometimes people just go like this, right? They call it what? Chimping, they call it. Um, we can lose our flow by looking at the images too much. So that helps you gain confidence by training yourself not to look constantly. You know, my normal philosophy is I, I do test shots at the beginning, get it to where I want it tethered, and then I don't look. Like, I never look at the review on my camera until I've got what I feel like I got the shot. Then I turn around and we look at them together. I feel that works really well because tethering does have can have that trap, just like the back of the camera, where you will keep looking at it. And your subject will, too, if you're shooting a subject. Yeah. Exactly. It's, um, I came up with this, this little sort of personal challenge, um, of again, to do with street photography, because I, I like to do a little bit of street photography just as a, you know, uh-huh. as a pastime basically. Um, and, uh, that's basically to say like, okay, I'm going to turn the screen on the back of the camera off and I'm just going to go out and I'm going to shoot just for a couple of hours or something. Um, and then when I come home, I'm going to look at the images and see how many <laughs> actually you know amounted to anything because that could be quite a surprising something but then you really have to just trust your gut instincts you know and in, yeah. in many ways of course it's it's much more like shooting film because you really didn't have a, a way to review your images back then you know exactly yeah and and i used to have this uh before like i made a rangefinder digital Epson did of all of all people and it actually had a screen that could fold back so you could hide it. I think some cameras do this now, but this is the first camera that did this. So I would walk around with it with the screen closed. It didn't have a um, electronic viewfinder. So it literally was like shooting film. You'd walk around and just, it had like a little meter inside and I would point it at the ground to get my meter and I'd walk around. And it did, it got me better at street photography because I always felt like I was missing shots because I was too worried about getting everything perfect. And I wanted to train myself not to think about that, like to just be ready, you know, using like hyperfocal and kind of presetting my exposure and just, 
learning that like, okay, I'm at this exposure. Ooh, I walked into the sun. Let's close down a little bit. I walked in the shade. Let's, you know, uh, open up. And you just start to get a feel for it and to see, and you can get good at it. And just like any kind of photography or anything you do, you will get used to it. And having that, it, it helps with your confidence overall. And the more confident you are, not like confident, like you're yeah, on the best, but confident on set that you're not thinking about the technology will help you be a better photographer because you can focus on the shot. Yeah, exactly. That's always, I think that's just like, you know, playing an instrument. You don't really want to think of the, the physical act of playing the instrument. You really want to be able to let it flow and just think about the music that you're creating. You know, if, if every time you change the chord on the guitar, if you had to think like, okay, where do my fingers go? What's the shape? Then of course you're spending too much time thinking about these aspects and you're kind of forgetting about the music. And it's exactly yeah, the same. That makes sense. It's, yeah, it's exactly the same in, in photography. And whether it's, you know, you can go to an extreme and basically just tape off the screen on the back of the camera or turn it off. Mm -hmm. um, or you can basically yeah. just say, like, okay, well, today I'm going to go out and I'm going to I'm gonna set my, I don't know, preset to black and white. And right. I'm only going to shoot black and white and I'm only going to shoot JPEG so that I don't have the ability of, like, fuffing around with it too much in post afterwards. Mm -hmm. like, really, it's about, you know, creating the end product in camera rather than relying on post-processing, you know, and, yeah. uh, and I find, I find that's, that's quite fun. Um, I have a, a little, uh, Fuji V series, uh, camera. Um, oh, nice. And yeah, you know, you can, you can, great. yeah, they're great. They're fantastic for street photography. You can, uh, you can make your own little presets, you know, your, your own little color presets, or there's, um, there's an app, which I forget what it's called now, uh, where people basically share their own little color recipes. So they're like, you know, make it their own little, you know, uh, film, uh, presets or whatever, you know, and, and you can then play around with the settings and program it in yourself and then, you know, try different things, um, which is kind of cool, bit nerdy, but it's, it's kind of fun. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. No, fun. I love stuff like that. You know, making everything your own is really, the, I think the key, which maybe is another thing to write. If you are somebody who is using presets, for instance, I actually just had this question recently on a live stream where people are like, Oh, what if I've used these types of presets or whatever? And I have, I mean, I've used presets that, you know, whatever. But in the end, what what makes us unique oftentimes is our own vision. So get presets from other people, look at the stuff that manufacturers give you, but then start creating your own. You know, say, can I make a black and white preset that I like better than this one? And why do I like it better? One that works better with the way I shoot because, you know, it needs to work for you, right? Something that, like my presets might not work for you because you don't shoot the way I do. Like, And if you have a fairly consistent style, you'll start to realize that even though your images look different, you do things the same. You shoot within the same tonal ranges. It's just the way we are. We we got we build style, you know. And my presets work for me. Like I can put my black and white presets on most of my images, and they'll work totally fine. They might not work for you, so you want to like create your own. But if you have if you don't know where to start, right? Like what? Then get some prepackaged ones. See what they do. Then like break them down a little bit. That might be a good thing to mess with if you've been doing that. Maybe think about what you love about them. It's so easy just to press the button. Yes, but maybe spend an hour and figure out your own presets that you can just press the button and it's yours. Exactly. And it's really easy to do. Like for instance, in Lightroom, it's super simple. Um, you know, you just, you know, you apply a preset and you can see all the settings, you know, in the, in the sidebar. And so you can start fiddling around with it, adjusting things. So maybe you think like, okay, well, I got a little too crazy, but worth lifting the shadows. So maybe we'll bring it up down a little bit, you know, whatever, or, or you might give it, you might want to give it a more filmic looking relationship. Who knows? You know, whatever your thing is, um, right. and, and you can, you can start to dial things in to the, to the point where it, where it works for your own personal sensitivities. You know, that's, 
that's the thing. And then, and then you can take that as a, maybe as a, a foundation to create your own style, as you said, you know, that's, that's always a good way to, good way of doing it. Yeah, I think that's ultimately what most of us want is to create something that's ours, right? That's unique to us. We love other people's work and we might want to emulate them on some level, but ultimately you want your own work, right? The thing that's inside you, you want to put it out there. So, you know, it, all the things we're talking about, like giving yourself goals and watching other people taking advice from people, that all, you take the pieces of it, then that becomes your style that you then build from. And, and I think if you are going with technology, it's a good idea to use it to your advantage. Like take what it does auto, right? Uh, but then well, I say auto like a preset, but then modify it for yourself. Like really start to dig in. If you're if you're used to using the camera a certain way, go in there and see what is this preset in the camera? What is this color thing? Or the what is the standard mode versus the portrait mode or whatever they call them in cameras? Is this, you know, uh, as far as the colors and like the saturation and stuff, start, a lot of cameras allow you to mess with that stuff. So which is kind of what I guess what you're talking about with the Fuji. Like I know in my Nikons, I can go in there and go, no, more contrast when I do this mode or less this. And and then you can start to find something that works for you, you know? And and I think that's ultimately what we want to do. So start messing with that stuff if you haven't yet. It's easy enough if you already have a camera. Most of them allow you to do it. Just see, like if you're always adding contrast and saturation in post, maybe dial that into the camera in the, in the, uh, the settings. You can always roll it back, you know, if it's shooting raw anyways. It's really, it just works for the JPEG. So you can just see what what you're getting. Exactly, as it's exactly as you said. It's like I'm shooting everything. Actually, I'm filming everything with Nikon's, and so what I found is that I constantly in post. You know, I used to um, I used to make certain changes. Eventually, I thought like, well, actually, why don't I just do this in camera and just you know create a preset that works? And and that's what it is. So again, it just makes everything more efficient because I don't have to do that in post now. It's literally I do zero color grading on this anyway. And I used to spend a lot of time just color grading things. Uh, but now it's you know it's it's pretty much fine and it's you know even if it's ninety five percent there I'm happy you know because ninety five percent right. there is is absolutely fine but uh, but yeah it's you know and of course you could do the the exact opposite from from what we we're talking about before and you could you could actually make you could simplify things so mm -hmm. you know um, you could instead of going out with a camera body and three lenses or something you just say like hey why don't I just take one camera with a fixed lens where I'm limiting myself to 35 mil, you know, focal length or whatever. And mm -hmm. that's all I've got. And that's all I've got to shoot. I've got to spend all day just shooting with this thing. And then let's see what I can come up with just by doing that. Because it'll teach you a whole bunch of things, like the fact that you have to use your yeah. your, your feet to zoom in and out, you know, rather than right. just being able to. So a lot of the time, I, I think sort of, reducing something down to and simplifying things can actually teach you a whole lot about you know about yourself and about the way that you shoot and it can have a massive impact on your photography you know some, sometimes simplification is is the key in order to grow in in all areas really no i agree with that and i think just to, to tag on to that is that when you do that and you take your 35 millimeter don't just go out there and shoot what you think 35 millimeters are for right like you Try to shoot everything you're going to shoot. Shoot shoot a portrait, shoot a landscape, shoot a whatever, a detailed shot, like a detail of something. The things you oh. wouldn't normally, like, you're, oh, I'd normally use this lens for this. Well, try and see what you can create. Do the portrait, but with a 35. What makes it work better? You know, if you frame it the same as you frame with your 85, it's going to look a lot different. Do you like that? Do you not like it? Do you want to frame it differently? Like, how do we use the negative space? 
And that will just, you know, don't just go out there and go, well, it's 35 millimeter. That's perfect for street photography, let's say, and then just shoot street, right? Go and do other things with it, things you wouldn't normally do. I think that's a great way to do it. I, I love to do that when I travel because I'm partially, I'm very lazy and I don't want to carry anything. I will take like the most minimal kit and I'll just have to shoot everything with it. If I have to shoot something, this is what I got, right? So yeah. it really makes you rethink, you know, how you do things. Uh, like, okay, exactly. I can't, you know, normally I'd zoom in and get a shot of this, but I only have a wide angle lens or I only have a long lens. Like, how do I do this? Do I want to shoot it in chunks and then put it together in post, you know, do some kind of panoramic later on? Like, think about again, all right, I, I only have a 50, but I'd rather have a 28. Can I make that work by going, you know, shooting like a bunch of pictures and putting them together and think about how you would accomplish it with what you have. And it will make you stretch outside your, your normal thought process. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a really good example. So uh, once a year, my local camera club do a thing uh, called a prime lens challenge, where basically you go to some city, um, I can't remember where they went, but I think oh, this year was Cambridge, maybe Oxford, I can't remember, but you go to a city and you spend a whole day there and you can only create images with a prime lens or with one focal length. So if you've got a zoom lens, you got to tape it off and all the rest of it. Um, but then, but you know, most people will pick the standard focal lengths, uh, focal lengths, the people are focal lengths. I can't talk today. <laughs> it's Monday. That's what it is. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, so people would, would pick uh, 50 mil obviously, or maybe an 85 or maybe 35. And that's usually what people, that's sort of the range that people would pick. And I always think like, what if I picked a 14 and now I've got to shoot everything with a 14. Yeah. So that'll be more interesting because now I really have to think completely differently and I can create completely different images from what you would normally expect with, you know, when it comes to street photography in general. It could just be, you know, it could just be a fun experiment. And it might, it might tank. <laughs> like it right. might tank completely. But hey, at least, you know, you learn something from it. I mean, even if things like this go wrong, you still come out with a learning experience in the end. That's how I always feel about stuff like that. Yeah, 100%. Taking something that's at the, the extreme, and I actually think wide is probably the smarter way to go, right? Because I think you can recover that. If you took a 200, you might be limited. I actually think the 14 is is nice. Uh, in fact, it's funny. I used to do a, shoot a lot of musicians, and uh, you, we would shoot like in recording studios, and the 14 was what I always used for that. I didn't own one because I couldn't afford it back then. So I'd rent it, and then when I would have it, I'd be like, oh, I got to shoot stuff with it. It's such a nice lens. So it is. it's such a different way to look at the world. If you've never used a really wide lens, I mean, and that's, it's yep. not like a fisheye wide, like it's just wide, right? It, it, use a 14. It's crazy. You, you put it up and also like, you know, like I'm looking here and my eyes can see like my camera and my desk in front of me at 14. It's like, I'm seeing over here, you know, it's like, it's so cool. Yeah, it's great. It's a great focal length. And also, you know, mm -hmm. I, do, I do a thing, um, it's a portrait series called Three Eights in a Row, again, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast. But it, the idea with that is it's, it's really, you know, to create um, kind of quirky portraits that are very cartoonish and a little bit out there and just, a little bit different um Honest. but in order to bring that across for me the natural choice was to go wider you know to, to create something that's um very much in a sort of 24 mil range you know anywhere between mm -hmm. 24 and 28 mil but what it does is it it because it ever so slightly distorts facial features especially because i'm i'm probably only a couple of feet away from from the yeah. subject's face you get quite a lot of that distortion but but really it's just the right amount to make things look hyper real and slightly comical. And because right. everything about these images is a little bit cartoonish, it really works. You know, it's not only right. the, the, you know, 
the way they dress or the way they pose or whatever is also actually the focal length that adds to just giving it that slightly cartoonish look. And it works really well. It's just that at anybody you talk to when it comes to portrait photography, they'll go like, oh, yeah, you can't, I mean, you know, no, 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 you can't go, like, you can't use 24 for portrait. Well, actually, yeah, you can. <laughs> you know, it just mm -hmm, depends yeah. on what kind of portrait you want to create. I mean, you know. Right. And, and I think it's really interesting because going back to, to what we were just talking about, do you learn that the 24 is good to make those cool portraits by locking down and saying, I'm going to walk around with the 24 and shoot everything with it, right? Going back to that idea. If you had put the 24 on and said, okay, I'm going to shoot with the 24 for the week, and then you just shot landscapes, you wouldn't learn like what it does in a portrait. And that's kind of the idea. So if you are going to do the single focal light thing, shoot a variety of things, like shoot the stuff you normally shoot without that, you know, that you don't normally shoot with that wide lens. So if I'm a portrait photographer, which I am, I'm going to shoot portraits with the wide lens, even though it's not normally what I do, because I want to see what it does. Then when you have an idea and you're like, how could I have this slightly distorted look for this comical feel? Oh, a wide angle lens will help me with that because I get real close. And I, I think that's how we learn, right? Exactly. Get yourself to use things you don't normally use. And it, it really yeah, works yeah. out well. Exactly. I just, uh, you know, it, it forced the other way around. I, I just... Um... Uh, a couple of days ago, I bought a 105 macro lens and because I needed it for a particular thing that I did. Uh, and so, uh, and it was reading a, I was reading a review and somebody said, I thought, yeah, I, you know, I love this lens. I even love it for, uh, for landscape photography. And I'm thinking, yes. well, I hadn't even thought about that. That's actually, that's a good idea. I mean, I guess I'll try that. I never, I mean, you know, yeah. I never thought of using a 105 for, for that. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll give that a shot. Sounds good. You know, who yeah, knows? It's a really sharp I mean, lens. I can definitely see that. That's a, the, yeah, that's a nice lens. Yeah, it's yeah, funny. Yeah, so I don't it's... use I don't use macro lenses for portraits. I have this debate all the time. People love use. I don't use them because they're so sharp. But I would definitely use yeah. that for a landscape. But see, I learned that by using a lot of macro lenses. That I personally think they're too sharp for portraits because I don't like ultra ultra sharp portraits. Other people love ultra sharp portraits. I'm probably in the minority there. So, uh, but yeah, that's a beautiful lens, and, and I could definitely see it for landscape. I hadn't thought about that either. But when you said it, I was like, oh yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. your framing is going to be different. And like, what landscape am I shooting with this? And how am I shooting? If I'm shooting the ocean, you know, maybe I'm not going to be able to see, you know, the, the shoreline because it's too long, depending on where I'm standing. So that might not be the uh, the, the lens I choose for that. But if I'm shooting something that's, you know, hills and trees and the sky and wide open areas, I could see the one that would be just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It'd be definitely, it'd be one of these things. I know that I'm going to try and experiment with that. So that's, that's going to give me just, an opportunity to just go out and try something that I haven't tried before. And, you know, as an end result, I guess I'm going to come back a better photographer because I would have learned something that I didn't know beforehand, but, you know. And, and even if it's just, even if all I've learned by the end of it is that, uh, well, that's not for me because I didn't like it. Right. Then that's fine. That's a, that's one thing I've learned is that I'm not a 105 just, landscape shooter. <laughs> no, right. That's, exactly. That's cool. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, actually, I, I had to buy this for for some macro. Well, because it was some more close up photography that I've that I've got to do. Got some projects coming up for that. Um, but you know, I use an eighty five a lot for portraits. I quite like that. I think headshots in particular. That's sort of my go to lens for a number of reasons. Actually, one is uh, because I quite like what it does to the face. But also, the other thing I like about it is um, is that it actually gets me closer to the subject. And when I'm doing nice. corporate headshots in particular. Um, it actually means that I can build up more rapport with the subject and that then means that uh, I can get them to relax a little bit more and you know, I'm not like, if I'm shooting with a 72-200 and I'm like much further away from them, it's much yeah. harder to build up that connection, that, that sort of just that human connection, you know. 
100%. I say, uh, that's exactly what I say all the time. It's like people, they'll be, oh, your lenses, you're too close to somebody. I, I'm trying to make a portrait. I don't want to have to yell at them. You know, I, it's one thing if you're shooting a, a you know professional model or whatever, and it's like on the beach and you want to use a 400 because you're doing this. But, you know, you're you're in a space with a person who doesn't, almost certainly they not, don't want to be there, right? I mean, if people, you know, yeah. what, what do you hear from everybody? Oh, I hate getting my picture taken. Oh, I never look at a picture. It's like, that's just, most people are going to, uh, uh, you know, come to you with that. So you don't want to be super far away from them, you know? So it's, I actually switched yeah. to an 85 though for the very practical reason. When I first moved to New York, I was doing everything on location and I had the, uh, the, the big zooms, you know, I had like the, whatever they call them, the 35 to whatever the, the big, you know, the big honking zooms. Cause I was, had lived in Florida where I had a car and I was carrying them to the park and I was like, oh, it's so heavy. <laughs> so I bought an 85 and I'm like, I'll just try this. And I ended up shooting everything with 85. Cause I was like, I had 85 and I had a 50 and I was like, this weighs nothing and I can get beautiful pictures and I can be, and then I learned that I really liked it. And then the, the other part came from it, the, oh, I could be close, you know? And, uh, yeah, but that, that's, that's, that's what we learn, right? When we use different things, because people will say this is a portrait lens, but why is the portrait lens in what context is the portrait lens? What is a portrait, right? Maybe that's a whole other subject, exactly. but you know, it's like you, you, you figure out what works for you. If you're going Absolutely. to shoot a, with an 85, and you're like, oh, I think I might like an 85 and I'm going to rent one, let's say. Well, yeah, do the portrait that you think you're going to do with it, but then see what else you can do with it. Is it worthwhile for you to own this lens for work that you may potentially do? Maybe you'll discover something about, you know, oh, I always use my 7 uh, to 200 for this, but you know, the 85 is actually the sweet spot. And now I don't have to carry on this giant lens, which is really what happened with me. You know, I was like, oh, good. My back will be saved. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, you know, I started out using the seventy to two hundred um, for portraits, nice. a lot for headshots, probably, um, and I used it a lot. Um, yeah. And then I sort of got into this this headspace of trying to make the uh, the subject comfortable, because especially mm -hmm. with you know corporate headshots in particular, the people that you get in front of the lens are not used to being in front of the lens. So, like yep. you said, they don't really want to be there. But at the same time, I know that I need to get them to chill out and be relaxed because that's how I get to the good results and that's how I can right. create good imagery. So I, I need to, um, rather than just take the picture, I need to basically apply some psychology. But of course, at the very beginning, when we don't know each other, you know, it, it's it, I don't want to be right up in their face. So I start okay. with a 70 to 200 and I probably spend the first 10 minutes or something just shooting, you know, some frames um, and then as I'm able to build that rapport and, you know, we, we get to know each other a little bit and we get more comfortable with each other, then I can eventually, I can switch to the 85 and that literally more than half the distance between me and the subject. And now yeah. it doesn't feel like I'm in their face. Now we know each other a little bit, you know, um, I can get that that person is, is more comfortable and then I can, I can go in and I can actually create the images that, that are really gonna work. And when it comes to the image selection, that's the other thing I've noticed. I can honestly say that probably nine out of 10 shots that they pick in the end will be shot with the 85. And it really, yeah. regardless of how long I spend shooting with the 70s joiner beforehand, you know, and so I've gotten to the point where I really use the 70s joiner really just as a device to chill that person out and to, to relax right. them. And then really, as soon as I feel, okay, cool, you know, they're not that freaked out by the soft boxes and the lights and the backgrounds and the reflectors and all that kind of stuff and all the all the right. paraphernalia that's around them, you know, and the big lens in their face. So as soon as I feel like they're, they're relaxing to that point, I'll immediately switch over. Then we're really starting 
for starting the shoot and then we really start to create some great images for them which is incidentally why i don't do like you know 10 minute headshot sessions it, because you just can't achieve that in that time and that's a waste of my life. i just don't like doing it so um yeah, no. so that's you know that's, yeah. that's the thing yeah talk about these specific yeah, that, 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 oh sorry that, that's a mugshot, right? It's like when you have to shoot 50 people and they're just like, okay, that's terrible. I, I don't want to do that. That's just the worst. Yeah, I, I try to avoid that kind of stuff. You you want to have a connection with your subject, I think. And and that's something else to that to, to aspire to. If you're if you are a portrait photographer, especially if you're shooting uh, you know, just your friends right now and you're you're growing, is to try to learn how to quickly make people comfortable. And not, you know, this like, you know, Dale Carnegie crap but like really you know and one thing that you can do is just really learn to be interested in people you know it's like that is the key it's like you need to i used to um to work for this guy he used to shoot a lot for the bat like time and newsweek and stuff like that he was a friend of mine and he would like just like research people like that's what he would do like he'd be like all right we'll go to photograph this golfer or this guy and he would like do google searches on him so when he got there, he'd be like, all right, I know that they're originally from this place. And I, he wouldn't make stuff up. He's like, oh, I've been there. So I'll mention that, you know, cause I've been on a trip there. Uh, he did this. And so if you, if you know that somebody is in a certain manufacturing type, or you know, you have to do these things, see if you can find a connection, like look for something. One thing that, um, this wedding photographer I used to work for years ago, uh, you know, I was very, very, very starting out is it, at first I thought he was just super nosy, but whenever he would show up at a house, he would look around, like he'd look at the pictures on the wall, he'd look at stuff. And then I realized He's trying to get a sense for these people because he wants to connect with them. You want to, because you have to turn it on right away, right? You've got to basically, you see this person, you need to make them comfortable. So you want to connect with them on some level. So if you see that picture on the walls, you know, that they graduated from this college and your, you know, son-in-law did or whatever, that's a connection that you have. And these are things that we can learn, like just to, and the best way to learn that is just go out and meet people, you know, maybe go to photo shows or join a camera club or something else, something not related to photography that you just like, like go to swap meets or, you know, uh, classes or whatever you want to do that you could just learn how to meet new people, <laughs> you know, cause some of us get trapped, especially when we're older in our own bubble. You know, when you're young, you're always around yeah. new people could watch us from school and stuff, but then you're in a bubble when you're older and like how many new people do you really meet on any real level and really connect with them. So if you're in that situation and you feel like it's awkward to meet new people, that's going to be important if you want to be a portrait photographer. So even a street photographer, like I used to like do interact with the people when I met them on the street. I mean, sometimes you get a shot, you know, and they never knew you were there. But a lot of times I, you know, and if you can make somebody comfortable really quickly, you can get a really nice portrait of them, you know, without much, but it takes that ability to do that. And that's super important. Comfortable subjects is the key really to a good portrait in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And it's one of these things that a lot of people who, especially, you know, people who want to get into, let's say headshots, for example, um, don't really consider because they think of a lot of the time, you know, people think of the technical aspects of it, like how do I light I mean, it, you know, what focal lengths are used, like how do I post them, blah, blah, blah. and of course, there's like there's tons of different um, sources of information where you can learn that kind of stuff. There's like creative life classes and YouTube mm -hmm. and this and that. The other, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways that you can learn how to post somebody for a headshot, you know, or how to light somebody for a headshot. Um, right. You know, uh, tons of great stuff on Adorama TV, of course. You know, just to mention that, but um, you know. But the thing about making somebody comfortable is, to me, that's always been absolute key, which is why I focused on that really right from the beginning. So, and again, it's something we find, you'll find several episodes on this podcast um, that you can, where I go into more detail about that. Um, so if you're listening or if you're watching, you just have a look at the playlist and, uh, and see to go from there. But in a nutshell, 
what what I do really is um, I I start a shoot really just with a sit down. You know, we'll have a coffee, we'll just have a chat. I try to find out who that person is, um, okay. and if, I try to find out a lot as much as I can about them. You know, like if it's a corporate headshot, for example, you know, what do they need the headshot for? Um, who are they? Like, what's their what's their job? What's their profession? What's their position within their job? So I know how I'm going to shoot them because I, I sh I'll shoot somebody who's in charge, like you know. The, I don't know, managing director or CEO, CEO of a company, I shoot differently from like somebody who's maybe in a people-facing position, like, you know, an IT guy or somebody who's in, in the service industry or something like that, um, or a doctor or whatever. I mean, it's the, the age-old comparison, you know, between um, a, a nurse and a divorce lawyer. Clearly two different photos. I mean, I, they're going to be completely different photos, the way I light them, the way I post them. Everything about these photos is going to be different, right? Um, but, right? But that's the important thing for me is, is to, to really find that out at the very beginning. So that's one reason why I do the little sit down. But the, the other reason I'll do that is because it just, it's just simply allows us to connect as two humans, you know, as people so that we're getting comfortable with each other, because I'm going to be taking photographs. The person that comes in, it's like you said earlier, they never want to have that photo taken. <laughs> it's like the most uncomfortable situation for them, you know? Um, and it's like just looking at themselves on a, on a screen or something is basically mega cringe. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's my job to make them feel comfortable with the process. And, uh, you know, and that's much easier if once we've gotten to know each other a little bit as, as, as humans, you know, and, and so I always start with that and it doesn't matter to me whether that takes five minutes or whether it takes 15 minutes or maybe whether it takes half an hour. I just have a sense or I've just developed a sense to know when that person is ready to sit in front of the camera. Um, which incidentally is also why I don't, uh, I, I don't use sort of a time-based charging system. You know, I don't, I don't right. charge by time, um, that, that, because it really does not work for me and it doesn't work for, for, for the, the kind of result that I want to achieve basically, you know, that's, that's just something that I've learned again, it's, that's, a an aspect of growth for me personally, as a photographer, I had to grow through the whole, like offering packages and doing it this way, like everybody else oh, does. I just had to grow through that to realize that that doesn't work for me. You know, so even, even on a business level, I think, you know, this can be very, uh, very useful to, to allow yourself to grow. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Actually is 100% uh, accurate. I think that different people need to approach the business in different ways and not everything will work and you might not feel comfortable doing something a certain way and you don't want to do it that way. Like I, I remember on that same thing when I was, I would do in headshots and I would, I noticed that everybody else had like a half package, like a cheaper package, right? Like a starter package. And the whole idea was that it gets you in the, and I realized that everybody who came for that package got the same thing everybody else got. I never gave them less than I gave somebody for the full package because I'm not going to <laughs> let them leave without a great shot. So I'm like, why am I offering something? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be like, well, your time's up. You know, you didn't get yeah. comfortable or you didn't get enough pictures. You're not happy with the pictures. Too bad. Like I wouldn't do that. So I always, and the funny part is, is as you shoot people, but because I don't just for as a business thing, as since I don't do that, like you said, I don't do time, whatever. When somebody comes back to get a shot from me, oftentimes they're in and out in like an hour because we're friends. Like they show up and it's like, bang, 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 we got the shot. And they don't complain. They're, they're there for the picture. They don't care that it took an hour or took three hours or, you know, whatever. Like they're not going to be like, oh, I want to get, you know, be paid less because, you no, know, they want the picture. So 
I like that system for me. So I think we're probably pretty similar in that way. I just charge by the project, you know, and whatever it takes. Uh, it usually takes way less because people will ask you how long. It usually takes way less than I, I would say, you know, you would say, oh, a lot this much time. It never takes that long. You do get the occasional person that's like, well, you said this long. And it's like, well, do you have pictures you like? I mean, it's like, do, do you want to keep shooting? And then they usually exactly. are like, oh, no, no, I got it. You know, it's like because the, they don't know what to do, right? They're used to a different kind of transaction, right? One where, you know, I'm buying this, you know, cup of coffee and it costs this much, but that's not really what we're doing. What we're doing is we're, we're creating an image. We're, we're creators. We're creating something together with our subject. And when it's done, it's done. You know, whether it takes exactly. five minutes or it takes an hour or two hours. Yeah. Exactly. And also, you know, just purely from a, if you look at it from a business perspective, for example, right. you know, by in this particular circumstance, like headshots, I've always felt that, um, well, it's actually not true. It's not that I've always felt that. I've learned that, um, you know, by, by creating a package, you're, immediately introducing limitations it's a little bit like you know you go to your local barista or your coffee store or coffee shop or something you know and they have three different sizes of of cups that you can buy right so you can buy your black americano or something you know as a small medium and a large and they cost three different prices and every all the expectations are set right so you know that if you get the medium cup this is how much it's going to cost you know you're not going to get less but you know, you definitely know you're not going to get more. And if you do get less, then you feel cheated and you start complaining, right? That's right. that's basically so everybody's got a set expectation. That could work in many situations, like when you're selling coffee, I guess. But with headshots, what I found is is that when I you know, I did the same thing. I created three different packages, you know, the cheap package that I knew was going to be so cheap nobody was going to take it because it was crap. <laughs> you know, and the vastly, ridiculously overpriced top package that was, I also knew nobody's going to get that. And, you know, so this is what every business class was going to tell you. People are going to go for the medium package because they don't want to feel cheap, but they also don't want to spend that much money. So they're going to go for the thing in the middle. And that's, you know, that's what happens 99 times out of 100. Okay, fine. But immediately, as soon as you set up a package, you're setting limitations. Like for instance, that medium right. package comes with three headshots, or like three retouch shots, and it's like, I don't know, let's say it's 45 minutes. Like let's say it's a 45 minute session, for argument's sake, it comes with five headshots, let's say, five retouch shots, and that's it. So immediately they have this expectation, because they already know, well, this is gonna cost this much, I'm gonna get five shots, and it's gonna take this long. Okay, so now you've boxed yourself in, because, uh -huh. You, you booked yourself in because you may, on one hand, put yourself under mega pressure because that person might be super uncomfortable in front of the camera. And after, let's say your your time limit is 45 minutes, but after 40 minutes, you realize you haven't got five decent shots or not five shots that you're happy with. And you kind of think, well, so now, shit, you know, I'm working against the clock. So what am I going to do? Either I'm going to stress myself out um, by delivering subpar work or... I'm going to extend the time and I'm going to give them an hour or an hour and a half anyhow, just because I'm stressing that I haven't got what I need. You know, I haven't got those five shots, you know, and, right. and then and that's it. And basically the, the top line of that session is always going to be whatever you charge for that session. It's, that's the limit. That's You're never going to go above that. Whilst right. with a more flexible system, so this is the thing that I've learned through experimentation and through advice, actually, you know, through advice from friends, um, I've learned that if I just simply stick to a session fee and I then have a per photo fee on top of that, um, and there's no time limit at all, this could be, I don't care, could be five hours, I, 
I've got time, you know, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. But what I know is that the more time a client gives me, the more different lighting setups, the more different looks I can run through, the more they will be likely to, add, I mean, really the vast majority, almost always I can say, they will at, as a minimum purchase the hero shot of each setup that I've managed to go through. So if I manage to do five backgrounds or lighting setups, whatever, I'll be guaranteed that they'll pick at least, they'll buy at least five shots at the end. So the more time they give me, the more setups I can go through, the more I'll be able to um, sell in a sense, you know, um, and the more I'll be able to, to, to monetize that session, if you want to call it that. So actually, right. it, you know, and, and the client works out with awesome shots that they're super happy with. So everybody's a winner. You know, mm -hmm. and when that penny dropped for me, it was like, yeah, this is a completely different way of doing it. And intuitively, mm -hmm. I remember a lot of people in the beginning said, like, yeah, but what if, I mean, what if you spend seven hours shooting? But it's then, you know, all of a sudden, then that's, you know, you're going to lose money. And I was like, well, no, because if I, if I spend seven hours shooting something, I'll be able to create a whole bunch of awesome images, which I know they're, I'm going to sell. So actually, no, it's... I'm, you know, I'm not limited by this fixed number of medium package costs this much, and that is it. I'm, I'm actually going to be able to, to really make, make that session become more lucrative, you know, in the end. And then it's completely worked, worked for me. So from purely from a business perspective, it's that's completely, completely worked. And it's made a massive difference because actually, when I, when I did do the pretty boring thing of eventually just looking at the pure numbers and I compared. Um, I compared the, you know, the, whatever the six months before and after, I actually realized that, that I ended up making quite a lot more money on headshots that way than I did before. And then immediately you think like, well, yeah, clearly it's working, but it's not only working from a financial point of view, it's also working on, it's working really on every level, you know, on the right. making the client more comfortable, uh, making the client happy because you create better looking work and they walk home with, with better images. I'm happier because I'm not stressed out. I'm not working against the clock. Yeah, sure, I'm happy. And I'm creating work that, for the most part, actually, most of it, I'd be happy to use in my portfolio because, you know, I can. I was able to put the time in and and put the quality in. Yeah, and it's a win-win, no-brainer. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's funny what I found when doing that kind of work is that the clients generally figure it out. Like, I think that people will approach it like, oh, really? As much as I want, I'm going to bring 20 outfits and spend all day. But once they get there and they pick like the three outfits they really want to be photographed in or whatever, or the four outfits, and then they've got amazing pictures, they're okay. Like, they, they're not like, oh, no, oh, no, I want to take more of your time. They got it. It's like, you know, it's like, that, that's yeah. been my experience. I haven't had anybody be like, oh, seven hours, we're just going to keep going. Yeah. You know, that's never happened. Although I have had yeah. the other thing, this is funny. Uh, this is years and years ago. It was so weird. And it struck me just totally out of uh, left field. I was shooting and actually it was a, uh, like a child. Uh, she was like a young teen and her aunt was like paying for it. And she asked me, she's like, well, how many like pictures will I get? Like the, the big, I do like the JPEGs I could choose from. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe like a hundred. And she's like, okay. You know, that's just not even thinking, right? Like, cause she was like, I want to do two outfits or whatever it was. So then like we do the shoot, we go through, I throw all the blanks and the weird ones and stuff. And I send, and there's 98 images. And this woman literally called me on the phone. It was like, you told me there'd be a hundred images 
And if I don't get two more images, I'm going to sue you. Oh, and I was shit. like, I'm like, what? I'm like, okay, do you want two pictures where she's blinking? And she's like, I just want my hundred images. I was like, all right. And I just put them in the Dropbox huh. and she was happy. And I was like, well, that's a weird way to approach somebody, but guess, guess what? You're never, you know, you are now fired as a, as a customer. And she did actually try to come back to me like six months later. And I was like, I have nothing on my calendar because like, <laughs> yeah, you now missed out. Like we could have had a good working relationship, but like that was a weird way to approach me because you decided she had probably always dealt with these people that was like, I want this for this. And you have to change that mindset. Art isn't like that. You know, it's, yeah, exactly, it's a project. Yeah. It's, it's ultimately you want to create amazing images and that's what we're going for. It's like, it's not about how many frames I shoot or this, that it, it matters what you get to walk away with in the end. And I think yeah. that's the thing to learn really as you go through business. And again, depending on what you do, it could be totally different. If you are a school photographer or something and you're shooting a hundred people a day, then you may have to put a time limit because you just don't have the the ability to do that. It's just a different kind of work. It really depends on the kind of work you're doing. But I find yeah. for more of a, you know, a headshot type, it's it's good to to build a relationship. Absolutely. And you know, I'm of course I've been talking about or we've been talking about individual headshots. Um, volume mm -hmm. situations are completely different. That's a yeah. completely different thing. If you're shooting like, you know, a company that has 45 employees or you're shooting a, um, a conference or something and you've got 100 or 200 people to go through on a day, that's a, that's a completely different thing. That's a conveyor belt thing. But of course, yeah. it, I mean, it, it's, it's really, you know, time and quality are, are virtually equivalent you know it's it's literally the more time it's like a balance scale the more time you spend the better the quality is going to be and the less time you spend the the less quality you're going to produce but the reality of course always is like how good is good enough you know that's right. that's the thing if you're shooting and what and again it's all about expectation management like if you're shooting if you've got a client they say like oh we're good conference you know um and all of our sales team from around the globe are here and there's like 400 people can you shoot them all in two days yes i can 100% I can. No problem, I can. Um, mm -hmm. But the, you know, the expectation isn't like, oh, you're going to, you know, you're going to create the photographic equivalent of Rembrandt here. You, you're not, right. you know, the expectation is you're shooting 400, 400 people in two days. That's the expectation here. And I can right. deliver that, you know, but, and they're all going to be decently lit and they're all going to be look, they're all going to look good and they're all going to look um, the same, which is the important with those kind of jobs, right. of course, because they want to use them for the corporate websites or whatever. They're all going to be lit the same and they're all going to, you know, the background's going to be the same and they're all going to be rendered the same. So, so their website's going to look good. That's, that's their expectation. And the expectation is not like, oh, I could only shoot 200. I got, we could come back or make extra appointments for the other 200 because that's not what they want. They want to shoot all of them in that right. whatever time's available. And yeah, that's different. But if you have, an individual come to you and they want a headshot for their uh, for for their website, for example, you know, um, and it's a it's an individual headshot. The expectation is different. That's why they want to look as good as they possibly can, you know. And that's again, it's it's a completely different different type of work, you know. It's like right. It's like yeah, and I think say, learning like. I think learning that part of it is good. It's a good part of the business, like understanding what the expectation is for what people are, because you can actually like put too high expectation on yourself, right? You might think of yourself as this like really amazing portrait photographer. Maybe you are, but when you have to shoot 400 portraits in two days, you're not that portrait photographer anymore. You're basically <laughs> humbling experience. a machine. Yeah. Yeah. You're just, you're, you're there. You try to make people 
you see, you say you say the same corny joke to every person to get them to smile, and you basically just bag it out yeah. and you're done. I mean, this there's not much else you can do there, and you, you can't really stress about it because you know that's the job and that's what they're looking for. Because expectations to yourself and also to the client are super important. I mean, that's really what matters because in the end, that's what we're, we're what they're paying for is a certain job. It's not always going to be the best thing in the world you can put in your portfolio. The goal, I think, for somebody like me is to have clients that want you to produce something that's good enough to put in your portfolio every time they come to see you. And those clients are willing to take the time and spend the money to do that. Yeah. And that's that's ultimately, that's the thing where, you know, both parties are happy, where you're happy with the work that you're creating as a photographer. And of course, the client is happy with the work that you've, that you've created. And once, I think once you've sort of built up a reputation for but let's put this way: once your work has built up a reputation for for what you can do, right. then you know, then that that becomes that becomes easier. But that's that's also you know that's something when we're talking about growing as a photographer. That's really something that um, I've found in my own past. That's been a really important kind of factor in my own growth as a photographer is to understand how to read the client's expectation. You know, uh, there's been such. I mean, that's. It's really that's been so important. There's been, I think everybody's had these experiences where you've completely missed somebody's expectation. Uh, you know, and maybe you, I remember, you know, um, years ago, this is years years ago. I started uh, shooting boxing matches, oh. and I did it for fun. It was it was paid. It was a paid job, you know. But um, I also thought it was it was kind of fun shooting some sports. Not something that I really knew a lot about at the time. And so you know. Um, I started working with this organization, this amateur boxing things. It's a charity event, um, and it's, it's a ton of it's a ton of fights. It's about anywhere between twenty and thirty um, fights per night, right? It's it's a lot of shots. So you come away with a lot of shots yeah. and a lot of boxing. Basically, you, just, you photograph a lot of people kicking their heads in, basically. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, uh, are are I just now as a curiosity, not to interrupt you, but are these things fast? Like how long does these, these box? Like I never. I only think of like these professional boxing matches that like are hours long. But like, like I mean, professional like on pay per view. But like, are yeah. are like most of these boxing matches long, or are they like five minute affairs? I mean, what's the? So there's three rounds. Um, so three oh, rounds. Okay. They they used to be three rounds of two minutes each. Um, they've just shortened okay. it to a minute and a half. Um, so you get all in. You probably get about five fights per hour five six fights per hour and that's wow, mainly that's because nice. you know so it's um so you get the extra fight and of course there's some time in between each round um mm. and then they get like they get a little um little plaque at the end of it and of course they, and this is this, this whole spiel of the um the referee announcing the winner and all that kind of stuff and there's just all that sort of stuff going on so so really realistically it's about five yeah about five six fights per hour so the whole evening is, is quite long it's like five six hours um that's that's usually thanks for it um but it's a charitable event that i raise they raise money for charity for for cancer research basically um right. but it's an interesting thing for me it was interesting because a i didn't know how to shoot sports really in the beginning and you know it was a cool thing to do um, i'm not into boxing at all actually but it was just a you know it's just a thing and i get really close access i can literally be on the ring like literally hanging over the ropes and that's how close i was oh, i can get some cool shots that way um and, you know, but in the beginning, when I first started doing that, of course, I went at it with like, oh, yeah, uh, I, I'm going to edit like every single image. 
And bearing in mind that on a typical night, I probably deliver around about, I'd say between 600 and 900 images is what I deliver. Because of course those images are being used, um, they go into an online gallery and then the participants and their family, whatever they can go and, um, you know, and, and pick out some images to have them printed and that sort of thing. So that's, that's the, that's the purpose. So I went into it with like thinking, oh, I'm going to like, I'm going to super edit every single image because they're going to look amazing and blah, blah, blah. Right. Just like I would do with like a portrait. Right. The problem yeah. is you do that with like 600 images, you're going to be spending a lot of time editing images. So, yeah. you know, and then eventually you get to the point where you go like, well, okay, what, what am I doing here? What is the end use of these images and how good is good enough? And then once right. you get to that point, you go like, okay, so what's my workflow and how can I, how can I reduce the amount of time that I'm editing? Because the reality is whilst I'm shooting, I'm earning money, whilst I'm editing, I'm losing money. It's just simple right. as that. So, and when, you know, when you're editing that amount of images, you're going to have to really get to the point where you can deal with each individual image super, super quick. No, um, I, because even if you just spend one minute per image, that's still 600 images. We're delivering 600, um, 600 photos and that's 10 hours. That's 10 hours. Yeah. That's 10 hours of editing. Yeah. You know? So you can't spend a minute on it. Um, you know, and even when you think it like in portrait terms, a minute is nothing because <laughs> you spend right. hours on, on an image. So yeah. then you're thinking like, okay, I've got, I've got to reduce it down to seconds, not minutes. And yeah. how can I do that? Blah, 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 you know? So, and of course now when I'm doing these things now, it's completely different. You know, now I'm, I spend probably, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half editing all these images and, yeah, so. you know, and yeah, they're not, I'm never going to win a Pulitzer Prize for any of those. That's for sure. But they are definitely good enough uh, for people to print them and, you know, to ha have them as a uh, souvenir of, of, of the event and, you know, something that they can look back at and be proud of having taken part in basically, you know, and that's, that's what the goal is here. <laughs> you know, it's not like creating right. like super awesome, great, fantastic imagery. And it might be the occasional shot where I think like, wow, that's a really fucking cool shot, shot even, pardon my French. Um, but yeah. you know, and yeah, I might take that shot and then at the later stage, do a more elaborate edit on it. Right. Cool. You know, but generally speaking, it's a commercial job. That's the purpose. That's the expectation. <laughs> And cool, you know, and that's, 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 yeah, that makes sense. That, you know, it's, it's really important to just to really get in tune with, with clients' expectations, obviously. 100%. Fantastic. Cool. Cool. Let me just check where we are time-wise actually. Oh, cool. Awesome. Wicked. Cool. Okay. Do we exceed, exceed expectations? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're absolutely bang on. We're exactly say. on. All right, perfect. Whoa. Awesome. Oops. Quite a minute. So I've just unplugged myself. That wasn't a clever move. Oh, no. <laughs> but I can hear you again. Awesome. All right, cool. Yeah, that's a really okay. fun conversation. All right, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. This will be an end, I guess. Right. All right. All right.
That being said, Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show um, again. It's the second time you've been on the show, and, um, and I'm pretty sure not the last time. Um, as always, super fun. Thank uh, you so much for coming on the Cameron Shake podcast. Yes, thanks for having me. It's always fun uh, talking with you and just about photography in general. I love talking about stuff. And you know what? Uh, honestly, this is on my Make Myself Better in 2024 list, just to be on more podcasts. So there you go. You've already started me on my way. Okay, folks, that's all for today. It was awesome catching up with Daniel on the show. But as always, before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you like. Check out episode 148 with Pi Jersa. I'm sure you love it. If you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com to help us continue creating and bringing you more exciting episodes. It really does mean the world to us. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, be reminded that there's a fully fledged, fully technicolored version over on YouTube um, where you can see our lovely faces in full technicolor, as I mentioned. Anyway, that being said, thank you for listening and watching, and I'll see you again next Thursday.